How does a business take a vision or a concept or a new product or service need from the vagueness of ideation to the realization of customer value? The process is called design. This is the Economics for Business podcast. We are here to help all businesses become champions for customers and value, improving lives with preferred and innovative products and services. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one. Now, here's your host, Hunter Hastings. Hi, Hunter Hastings here. You might think of the term design as applying to colors and shapes and lines, or as form and aesthetics. Maybe you think of engineering design or software or website design, where functionality is conceived. But design is also a core process for business and it's fundamental for entrepreneurial business to generate new customer value. We can think of design as a bridge. At one end, there's the internal environment inside our firm. We have a group of people or teams of people with certain skills and capabilities. We have capital combined in some specific way. We have a set of resources of various kinds, including our processes. We have some existing business and some revenues coming in. At the other end lies the external world of customers and competitors and markets and institutions and regulations. We have an idea at our end, the internal end, of how we can generate value for the external world. How do we get from our side to their side and realize a perfect fit, i.e. we produce what they want and will pay for? We call the process that gets us across that chasm design. And we can assist in the design process with design tools. Our guest today will call them artifacts, things we can construct to get us closer and closer to that perfect fit. These tools might start out in a quite abstract area of design, like a value proposition template or a brand uniqueness blueprint. As we learn more and more, the tools take us to greater levels of concreteness and measurability such as prototypes and landing pages and business plans. Eventually, we get close enough that we are ready to launch. That's the design process. Entrepreneurship is design. Our guest today is Henrik Berglund. He teaches in the Department of Technology Management and Economics at Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg. Entrepreneurship as design is his focus. He runs startup incubators and accelerators so he can test his theories in action. And that informs his courses in creating new business and creating technology-based ventures. He's a theorist, a teacher, and a practicing entrepreneur. Henrik, welcome to the Economics of Business podcast. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. We're, we're looking forward to your contribution to our Economics for Business project. We're trying to build a bridge between business theory and business practice. Mm -hmm. We're trying to help entrepreneurs, give them the latest knowledge and the best tools that they can apply. It's it's, uh, for their use. And I think you have a similar mission at Chalmers University of Technology. I was on the university website and um, under innovation and entrepreneurship, you talk about teaching students, executive education, research, and startup incubation. So that, that sounds like practice. So Tell us about you and, and Chalmers and, and what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, I always enjoy talking about, uh, you know, uh, the research that I do. And especially given what you just said about the podcast, uh, 
trying to do things or develop theories that are more applicable and useful. That's exactly what I try to do with this, with this paper. Uh, yeah, I'm at, at Chalmers University of Technology, and uh, in terms of you know background, I, you know, since I was the first in my family to go to university, uh, I, I started out in physics. You know, since math and physics was uh, were the subjects that I was good at, but. After a year of learning what the, the alternatives were, I switched over to industrial engineering management, uh, and uh, I got a PhD in entrepreneurship research, entrepreneurship theory, uh, with a very clear focus on innovation and technology. And, and, and that is something that is you know, very common, and it's a great large part of, of Chalmers University. There's a lot of initiatives to uh, encourage entrepreneurship. There is lots of entrepreneurship education. We have a pretty interesting School of Entrepreneurship, where we actually try to combine technologies developed by the research faculty with students who work with those technologies for the two years masters that they take and try to build businesses, proper businesses out of them. And uh, some of them have done really great. So uh, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very, it's a big thing at our university. Is that a, a, a Swedish thing or a Nordic thing, Henrik, that you're I, ahead in this, uh, this kind of thinking and teaching of entrepreneurship? Uh, I wouldn't say so. I think it's 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 probably it's quite. Uh, I mean, the things that I talked about now is qu they're quite idiosyncratic to quite specific to uh, Chalmers. It started out many years ago. There was an old professor of physics, actually solid state uh, electronics, who had spent some time at uh, I think he was at Bell Labs and he was at Princeton. And then when he came back to Chalmers, he had seen all these, you know, spin-off, uh, you know, initiatives and patenting and technology licensing offices. And there was very little of that in Sweden. So he started up that type of thing and actually had a kind of a second career at Chalmers working with spin-offs and uh, technology commercialization. And, and uh, after him, uh, his professorship was taken over by my former supervisor, who was also a very practical person, helped start some of Sweden's first venture capital firms and uh, started many of these, the School of Entrepreneurship and all these other things that I spoke about. So I wouldn't say it's something that is like inherent in the Scandinavian sentiment, but uh, fairly idiosyncratic and specific to, to Chalmers. But I mean, I think it's, it's also something, it is something that is encouraged by policy in general in Sweden. And there is a lot of effort based on it, on entrepreneurship education and entrepreneurship research and teaching. Uh, yeah. Well, let's start with a, a specific paper that you and I have talked about a little bit. It, it brilliantly exemplifies this intersection of theory and practice. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really useful for thinking about business. The title is Opportunities as Artifacts and Entrepreneurship as Design. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's unpack that. You start with the academic debate about business opportunities. Are they out there or do mm -hmm. entrepreneurs create them? And We've covered that before, but it's a starting point. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the history of that debate, uh, Henrik. Yeah. Uh, I think the opportunity concept is uh, quite meaningless for management research, to be honest. Uh, I mean, sure, entrepreneurs speak about opportunities, but you know, I don't think they kind of operationalize that concept. It's more just a part of natural language. Uh, the problem is that, uh, that um, well, Let's take a step back. I mean, the, the concept of opportunities exists in, in, uh, in uh, economic theorizing. You know, Kurtzner and others, they talk about opportunities. But they do it as part of a very kind of abstract theoretical system to help make sense of, of, of uh, the economic system, the theoretical system. 
So, so in the paper, I, I make the parallel to Einstein's uh, use of the cosmological constant. So Einstein, early on in his work, uh, introduced uh, something that he called the cosmological constant into his theories in order to make the universe static despite gravity. You know? But it was just like this, this artifact that he introduced into his theory in order to make sense of it. And I think that's the same for economists in many ways. Kirchner talks about opportunities as kind of this placeholder construct to be able to speak about equilibration and coordination. People discover arbitrage opportunities and hence the economy is kind of coordinated. Um, but it's not something that's intended to be a behavioral construct. It's not something that management scholars should kind of try to operationalize. And uh, when Kirchner won this uh, award for, for entrepreneurship research, the Swedish award actually, uh, his, his comment was, I have nothing to say to practicing entrepreneurs. That's not my, you know, that's not what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's quite true. And I think in that sense, the way the opportunity construct has been used by management scholars has been a bit of a uh, red herring, you know, hasn't led to much. And I mean, some people try to kind of treat opportunities as objectively existing, and then they try to identify, you know, what part of the environment constitute opportunities. Is it some sort of, technological potential? Is it latent demand? Is it, you know, demographic shifts and trends in, in preferences? What, what is it? And uh, others try to identify individuals' alertness to, to opportunities of that kind in terms of, you know, cognitive schemas or scripts or uh, reflecting some sort of prior knowledge that makes them more likely to discover some opportunities and uh, a general capacity for pattern matching, you know, some, something inherent in the individual that matches with the external circumstance. And, uh, and, and, and the combination of these two then, like individual motivations and, and capacities and objective external reality, when they just combine, boom, entrepreneurship happens. And, and uh, Scott Shane, who was uh, one of the key figures in, in, in taking this economic concept and making it into management concept, he, he in one paper wrote that uh, we need to know the magnitude of the force exerted by the opportunities themselves to accurately estimate the effect of individual motivation on entrepreneurial decisions. So it's like this calculus almost of, of <laughs> motivation right. plus circumstance equals entrepreneurship. Yeah, and yeah, I, and I, think inter, I think this is, you know, to, to connect to, uh, to your podcast's Austrian kind of uh, ambitions or roots, this, this is kind of a very, this is a very kind of scientific, you know, view of entrepreneurship. It's trying to kind of emulate what one believes is the natural sciences and try to explain entrepreneurship by combining various forces uh, or fields. And um, I think discussing entrepreneurship in this way misses almost everything that is interesting and managerially relevant about entrepreneurship as a concrete practice. Okay, well, that's definite. Uh, so in your paper, which uh, I really enjoyed, there's you describe a different way to approach the question, something that you can do. It's, uh, it's material in your words or it's behavioral. And that's approaching it through the lens of design. Yeah. So let's carefully define design as you mean it in this context, and then we'll, we'll build on that. Yeah. Um, well, design or, or design science um, is, is a very large part of, of academic knowledge production and academia. I mean, this is, this is uh, the, the main or one of the main ways of, of uh, conducting research in fields such as engineering or medicine or architecture or information systems or human-computer interaction. 
and uh, and uh, a common distinction is between science and engineering or science and technology where uh, natural scientists try to describe and explain the workings of nature as it exists out there you know what are the properties of materials what are uh, how do uh, various forces work in the world how can we understand the world and explain the world basically whereas uh, technology oriented or design oriented disciplines are more concerned with designing new artifacts designing tools medical prescriptions or medical treatments um, uh, smartphones cars what have you and the research you do uh, in those disciplines of course builds to a great extent on insights from the natural sciences but the type of knowledge you produce is tools and methods for how to design and and uh, so on trying to help the professions become more successful in what they do and um i think uh, the problem is that many entrepreneurship scholars and i think much of management in general likes to study entrepreneurship and management more as a science as a natural science trying to describe and explain and find causal mechanisms and all that type of stuff uh, as opposed to try to develop more pragmatically useful theories and tools that uh, can be used to actually help the practice, help the, I wouldn't say that entrepreneurship is a profession, but typically uh, many of these disciplines, they, they have a profession that they serve. You know, it's the engineer, it's the, the physician, it's the architect, and you develop kind of tools and knowledge in the aid of that profession. And I think management uh, could do a bit more of that, but management and entrepreneurship research wants to be more of a science and try to explain and identify mechanisms. Well, it's fundamentally Austrian, of course, Henrik, because mm -hmm. the whole point about Mises and his colleagues was that we're not a natural science. Exactly. We're a social science. Yeah. I, li I like that. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I coined it, but uh, he speaks frequently of scientism, you know, which is this yes. idea that you kind of emulate the natural sciences in. Yeah. In, in without its, any in its, substance behind well, it. Well, you, you do it not in the spirit of it, you know, being true to the type of knowledge that you really want to uncover, but you just go through the motions and emulate the methods and and, uh, and kind of behaviors of the science, even if it's not applicable to what you're actually trying to accomplish. And I think, uh, I mean, this is not to say that all entrepreneurship research has to be, you know, more pragmatic and more kind of engineering-y in, in its style. There is a lot of value in, you know, just describing how many companies are started, how many get VC funding, what's the proportion of women getting funding, you know, what's the uh, effect of having a patent on your likelihood of raising VC funding, that type of research that many people do. Not all of it is useful, but some of it is really, really useful. But uh, there is, um, I think, uh, too much of an emphasis on that type of descriptive research. Uh, and that's the reason, I think, why... So many entrepreneurship researchers, when they teach, because there is a great demand for teaching entrepreneurship classes, uh, they cannot really use the type of research that they engage in themselves. So instead, they instead they they pull out Steve Blank's startup owner's manual or Eric Ries' the Lean Startup or some similar book, and that's that's the type of thing that they teach their students. Yeah, and they kind of grudgingly admit to doing this, you know, because it's not really kosher to teach that type of practitioner stuff. So I just want to seize on something that you mentioned there. When I made a note uh, about your reference to architecture and engineering and, mm -hmm. and so on, I said, boy, that's great. Entrepreneurship is a profession now. Uh, but you said something more important just then, and I'd like to expand on it, which is entrepreneurship serves professions. 
which I, I like that thought because we can start to explain how entrepreneurship works in large corporations and in different contexts. So can you expand on that a little bit? We're serving professions. Did, did, I, did I say that? Uh, you said that. Yeah, I, I wrote not, it down. That, that, then I must have misspoken. I, what I meant to say is that uh, scholars in these more, more uh, practical fields, more design-oriented fields, the scholars serve a profession typically. So a professor of uh, electrical engineering you know, uh, will develop theories and tools to serve the the engineer who's out there trying to construct the you know microprocessor or whatnot. And uh, and uh, we as entrepreneurship scholars uh, should perhaps serve the practice of entrepreneurship. I'm, I wouldn't say that entrepreneurship is a profession. You know, I'm, I you know the whole professions literature is a is a pretty big literature, and I don't think uh, entrepreneurship falls you know within the definitional bounds of what constitutes a profession. And I think there are people who try to professionalize entrepreneurship. I'm sure there is credentialing initiatives going on and that type of thing, but uh, I, I wouldn't call entrepreneurship a profession. But that doesn't mean that it isn't a practice and that it isn't a practice that we as scholars should try to develop tools uh, to try to help um, improve their practice. Okay. Okay, let me get out of that dead end then. You, yeah. you, uh, <laughs> you've mentioned a couple of words uh, about design, design artifacts. Um, mm -hmm. And you also in the paper talk about design principles. I'm not sure which order you want to tackle those in, but tell us what are the what are design artifacts and what are design principles and how do I use them? Yeah. Um, so if we continue the kind of contrast between more explanatory, descriptive kind of natural sciences and more design oriented uh, disciplines like like engineering and architecture and that type of thing. Um, a natural scientist uh, will typically aim to just, in their theories, describe the world as it is, right? The world exists out there and you develop a theory to describe it, you know, E equals MC squared. That's how energy and matter relates. Um, uh, in design, the, the, you're, you're not just interested in describing and explaining the world. You are ex interested in, in um, designing some sort of artifact or developing theories and tools to help the, the profession, the actual practicing engineer, design a new car or a new artifact. So, so the artifact is a core part of, uh, of uh, the whole uh, scientific endeavor and the practical endeavor. And uh, in this paper, uh, I, I build a lot on the work of Herbert Simon and his uh, Sciences of the Artificial. And, and in there, uh, he, design, he defines uh, artifact as uh, an interface between an inner and an outer environment. So the, the inner envi environment is that thing that the artifact is, is made out of. Um, and uh, the external environment is the, the context in which the artifact performs. So uh, let's say you have a knife, for instance. I use that example in the paper. You want to design a knife. Then the knife is built out of some iron or steel or some wood perhaps or some other things and the way you put all these different things together uh, is the artifact the kind of interface the boundaries of it the way it looks the way it's put together is the artifact and and it serves its purpose if it fits with the environment which could be you know your hand should be nice to hold and effective to hold given what you do it should be able to cut the material it's intended to cut Perhaps it should be in line with the aesthetic sentiments pertaining to knives, etc. So it, it has to fit with the external environment. And the artifact is the kind of the interface between the configuration of internal materials and the external environment into which it should fit. So 
when I think about companies then is the, uh, the internal environment is my company and the people who work for me and the technology I have, what some yeah. people call the resources. The external world is the market, right? Or my yeah. customer or... Th those types of things I would say, yeah. So let, if, you, if, you, if you call the, the, the business is your artifact that you design as an entrepreneur, then, then you know, and if, I mean, these are, you know, it's, it's, the reality is extremely complex and there are lots of different things uh, that, that exist out there in the world and in the, in, in the, in the company. But uh, in general, I think you could talk about the individuals and the resources and the technologies and the IP or all these things that you have inside your company, the resources at your disposal that you combine in different ways in such a way so as to be able to effectively uh, uh, succeed in the market. If your ambition is to make a profit, a huge profit, then that's what you should aim for. If your ambition is to change society or influence people or contribute to your local community, then that's what you should aim for. So whether or not an artifact fulfills its function uh, is dependent on uh, the purposes of the designer. And sometimes that purpose could be to maximize profit. Sometimes it could be something else. So purpose yeah. is really important to design as well. And I got the impression, Henrik, tell me if I got this right or wrong, is this kind of a sequence of these design artifacts as I get closer and closer to the external world and, and finalizing something. Um, my head held vision is, you know, it starts with a sketch on the back of a napkin. That's mm -hmm. an artifact. And it finishes up with a prototype and a business plan and a landing page that I can I can test and it kind of goes from uh more conceptual to more practical or more more material is that do i have that right well i don't think it necessarily has to go in a particular order but uh, it's probably safe to say that it usually starts out more kind of vague and and uh, unspecific and you try to kind of formalize it somehow or you and and, and as you as you progress uh, through the process of of creating and designing the business uh, some things become clearer and you can test them with more specificity or, uh, and, 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 uh, so you might, as you say, you might start with a back of the uh, napkin sketch of something. Uh, and as you, as you develop it, it becomes clearer and clearer. You might be able to build a prototype. You're able to run simulations on, on profitability and, uh, and, uh, that type of thing. Uh, so it, it, it usually goes, or it hopefully should go from more kind of vague and unclear to more clear and more specific until you have something that actually is a proper running business. A quick note, Economics for Business is a uniquely Austrian platform to help entrepreneurs build value-generating businesses at every stage of the entrepreneurial journey. We've now launched online with an outstanding database of entrepreneurial knowledge, tools to solve specific business problems, and a community exchange to share information and experiences. Check it out at econforbusiness.com. That's E-C-O-N, the number four, business.com. Explore and let us know what works best for you in the feedback section. Now, back to our conversation. But they're, they're all measurable, right? They're all testable. You talked about uh, testing. I, one of our friends who comes on the podcast occasionally is Kurt Carlson, who mm -hmm. has the a design process he calls NABC. Um, yeah. And that the, generates artifacts, more vague at the beginning and more precise at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says the whole point about them is, is measuring them. 
and we've got to debate how to measure them. Uh, you said the test is how well they help perform given tasks and given situations. So just go a little bit deeper into testing and measurement of artifacts. Yeah. Um, one other pair of concepts that we use in the paper is uh, between experimentation and transformation. Uh, I think you perhaps plan to get to that a bit later, but I think it makes sense to to discuss them now because uh, this this idea of of measuring in a very kind of clear way uh, in many ways makes more sense uh, in experimentation than in transformation. So uh, experimentation uh, is an an experimentation and transformation are introduced as kind of two ideal types of this entrepreneurial of of how entrepreneurial design can can look. So experimentation assumes that there is an existing world out there, you know, it exists objectively out there, and uh, your purpose as an entrepreneur is to uh, test your vision against, test and develop your vision against that uh, external world. And you do that by building various prototypes, and you can see how effectively uh, they work. And your basic assumption is that the the better you have understood the external world, for instance, the demand for for a product, the better it will be performing. So then you can kind of measure your your way towards adapting your product to the external environment, to the external world. Now in this other mode transformation, the basic assumption is, is that the world doesn't really exist out there. It is a kind of a social construction. You, you co-create the world as you go along. You're not just adapting something to an existing set of um, uh, needs or demand by an existing uh, set of potential customers you actually transform the world in some way with your product. Um, so um, uh, an example of experimentation uh, that we use in the paper is, is uh, Dropbox and their use of uh, a landing uh, a video describing the product and the user experience that they posted on a number of online forums and got lots of feedback and people signed up to, to um, be uh, beta testers of the product and even to sign up to actually be users of the product. And that was then confirmation that indeed that that external that demand does exist. On the other hand, you can think of uh, other examples like um, like the iPhone, which we also use an example as an example. Of course, they had a vision and an idea for what the product could be, but their ambition was not to just satisfy an existing demand. What they actually did was help transform the entire idea of what a smartphone could be. You know what the category of smartphone was, the whole idea of how you. Uh, buy and distribute and download uh, apps through an app store, how you relate your phone, being always online, having like a graphical and intuitive user interface. All those things were kind of transformed by this product. And it wasn't, it wasn't created by uh, Apple alone. It was a co-creation process in the sense that the app store allowed pretty much anyone after the app store was introduced. It wasn't in the first version of the iPhone, which is kind of interesting to note. but. When they opened the uh, the app store to um, to developers, the developers helped define what a smartphone was and what the particular smartphone that Apple developed was. Um, so that's an example of this more co-creational process. And I think in those contexts, it's more tricky to say that you should clearly measure the progress you're making because you don't really know what you're aiming towards, what the actual end result is going to be. Of course, you can measure how effectively you run your process or if people are doing their job, but I think measuring means quite different things in those two contexts. Yeah. I found that example really helpful and specific. Mm -hmm. For Dropbox, it was 
will my product be de- perceived as useful by, by the audience? Mm-hmm. And for the iPhone, it was, will people be inspired to collaborate right. or, or, or interact in new ways? And vaguely, I can't, I can't uh, describe it as you said, no. but exactly, exactly. And, and this goes to, this goes to uh, what you need in your kind of, what we in the paper call sometimes intermediate artifact what you need in your kind of uh, the artifacts that you use to develop your venture, your business. Uh, so in the case of Dropbox, it was really important that the video that they created was very um, unambiguously and clearly describing the product that they wanted to build so that people, so that they got a good signal in the feedback. So that w- it wasn't a lot of noise, whether or not people downloaded or not was grounded in. Uh, or whether their downloading or signing up was based on a misconception or a misunderstanding of what, what it was. It was really important to be very clear. This is exactly what it is. And uh, if you sign up, then it should be a signal that this product is attractive to you. Whereas for, for Apple, they intentionally designed uh, the product to be open for co-creation. You know, they made the App Store open-ended. Uh, they allowed uh, people to, uh, to manipulate their phone. And I think in this case, Apple is perhaps not the best example, but if you think of open source software projects, for instance, they're designed so that people can fork the code base and take it in different directions. I mean, it's, it's, it's intendedly designed to be mutable and transformable by individuals engaging in the process. And, and then if you try to design something that's super clear, super distinct, cannot be changed, cannot be misinterpreted, that's not effective for that type of process. Whereas if you do something very vague and clear and mutable, that doesn't give you a strong signal in the first instance. So these two ideal types of experimentation and transformation require different ways of engaging others, and they uh, require different constraints and affordances of the actual artifacts that they work with. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I sort of picked up, I may have got this wrong, so tell me if I, if I did. Uh, Organizational implications there. You said that experimentation tends to be hierarchical. You need somebody with a vision to tell others what experiments to run to find out if my vision is right, Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, the, uh, what do you call it, heterotical or network organizations Mm -hmm. where you've got lots of people collaborating around this this transformation idea and and you you collaborate horizontally, not, not vertically. Did I get that? even close to right. Yeah, yeah, I think you got it right. Uh, okay. But again, we should keep in mind that what we're painting in this paper are broad ideal types, like uh, theoretical uh, types that are useful to think about these things. In any real life situation, it's going to be you know a mix and match of, of all kinds of things. But yeah, uh, this whole idea of experimentation where, uh, where you have a vision and you test it against uh, uh, an assumedly existing external reality that kind of relies on a central vision now, it doesn't have to be one individual having it. It could be like a tight-knit team who have developed this vision. and then. Uh, but the important thing is that, that there is one central vision or perhaps you, know, you operationalize it or, or you have, might have two ideas and you test them in parallel to see which one is best. But there is a clear idea of what you're doing and it's a clear and central idea. Um, in an early paper by uh, Rita McMillan and Ian McGrath, uh, oh, sorry. Rita, uh, in an early paper by Rita McGrath and Ian McMillan, I think it was in HBR in 1995, and they published it in a book even earlier. Um, they talk about discovery-driven planning, and and that notion gave rise to it was inspiration for Blank's work and Eric Ries's work and others. 
they talk about the importance of having a central keeper of the assumptions, they call it. You know, someone needs to be the central kind of repository for our business assumptions as we test them. So the whole idea of, of having an hypothesis testing experimenting approach is based on the fact that uh, there is kind of a, a version control and the centralization of, of, uh, of your business assumptions. In contrast, this transformational approach where you co-create and you uh, develop uh, together with others um, needs to uh, be more kind of egalitarian, needs to uh, involve lots of people who can make local judgments and local contributions. Now, that doesn't mean that in some sense, organizationally, uh, you can have a CEO and a boss, but the goal of that person is not to decide and determine and allo- allocate decision rights based on some sort of central strategic initiative. The purpose of that person is to facilitate a kind of co-creation process, facilitate uh, creative interactions between others. So uh, again, in a specific situation, it's going to be a mix and match of all these things. But I think as ideal types, when you think of it, it's very different when you, when you try to facilitate a process where people can creatively interact with one another or where you try to direct an experimental approach. Yeah. As you say, any company might mix and match those depending on its projects and the stage of development and those kinds of Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Yeah, which is it's a complex idea in itself. Yeah. So it seems to me we've changed some things here, Henrik, in, in entrepreneurial theory. Let's go back to that. Um, we think of entrepreneurship as action, mm-hmm. which is great, but you're saying it's specific action. It's individuals designing artifacts at their interface with the external world. It's a specific kind of action and I can, I can, or you can help people with how to act as designers, right? Yeah. I, I think so. And I think that's, it's, it's something that is, uh, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm teaching entrepreneurship quite a lot and I've uh, organized uh, and run a bunch of accelerator programs in Sweden for many, many years with very promising kind of tech startups with involvement of angel investors and VCs and others. And uh, I mean, thinking about it in this way, thinking about, uh, you know, what should we be building? You know, how should we pitch to this person so to invite them to help us create this new project? I mean, those are the things that occupy uh, entrepreneurs' minds. It's not that you think, oh, uh, how could I discover the best opportunity? It's like, no, you do things, you build things, mm-hmm. uh, you you build prototypes, you construct pitches, you... Um, Try to get others to join your project and trying to develop uh, ways to think about that uh, and the categories of types of artifacts, which is what we're beginning to do in, in this paper and uh, a book chapter that's coming out soon as well. Uh, I think it's, it's going to be a much more useful kind of entrepreneurship research uh, or entrepreneurship theory. Uh, and in my experience in, in teaching and in uh, working with companies, this is very intuitive. And I mean, it might be my background as an engineer and being at an engineering school and working in all these companies with, with technical people. But I mean, if you come from an engineering background, this is a very, very natural way uh, of thinking about what you're doing. You build prototypes, you build demonstrators, you, know, you test stuff, you move forward. Well, but can you help people be better at it, uh, Henrik, better at that? what we call judgment, we'll get to that in a second, but better at collaboration, better at process, better at, at uh, creativity with, with good design artifacts. Can you give them a pathway? Can you give them some help? 
I hear where you're coming from here because many Austrians would say that it, you know you can't teach judgment, and I, I I agree with that. But that doesn't mean that you can't teach tools that make it more likely to effectively engage others, for instance, or that you can think about principles for how you can test your judgment, which is what experimentation is basically about. So, okay, I have this idea for a business. Uh, how should I think about testing it as quickly as possible? You know, should I build a prototype? Uh, should I just go and talk to a few customers? Uh, should I uh, make a landing page and buy some online ads? You know, what, what should I be doing? And if you have ideas about uh, what options are available, uh, what the advantages they have for, for doing certain things and perhaps disadvantages for doing others, that can be helpful. It's no substitute for sound judgment, but it's tools to helping you act on that judgment, I would say. Yeah. Well, let me give you a specific example and you can uh, critique it for me. One of the uh, design artifacts, I can call them that now, on our Economics for Business site is what we call the brand uniqueness blueprint. Okay. So it goes into what's the theory of a brand? Why is a brand helpful to an entrepreneur? How would you design a brand? And we have a process for that. And we've got a kind of template that requires you to gather certain information and process it in certain ways. And we've got some measurements that say, is this a good brand template? So would that be an example of a design artifact that I can uh, suggest to an entrepreneur that it will be helpful to her or him in, in developing a brand? Well, uh, if you look at the whole kind of design science uh, approach uh, as it exists in all these different disciplines that I mentioned, information systems and engineering, where, where people try to develop these tools, you typically don't just, uh, you know, uh, propose them out of thin air, you usually try to ground them in some sort of analysis of the situation and you try to test them out. You know, you, you, you develop a tool, you test them with practitioners, see if it actually is helpful to them. So you try, you, you still validate your knowledge, but it's more, uh, it's more uh, of a pragmatic kind of validation as opposed to a correspondence theory of truth, as philosophers would call it, you know, trying to say, does, does this correctly describe the world or does it discover or or describe some sort of objective mechanism out there it's more is this tool functional and useful and you can test that in different ways uh, of course so to the extent that you have have tested the tool that you that you just mentioned and people have found it useful you know there is there is some kind of uh, some kind of warrant that it actually has has value for people and uh, yeah, good, yeah. Good. but i think i mean it's it's there's there are lots of insights to borrow from other fields, uh, but in terms of relating this to entrepreneurship, there is it's it's very early days. I mean, not too many people are thinking about it this way. There are other people, of course. Uh, Sara Sarasvati has been thinking about this in terms of design for a long time. Um, Dimo Dimov is another colleague that I'm working with who's uh, on board with this way of thinking. Um, I recently started up a journal. A sister journal to Journal of Business Venturing, this uh, Journal of Business Venturing called Journal of Business Venturing Design, uh, that is uh, publishing its inaugural issue soon. Uh, so there is a lot of interest in this, but as a kind of theoretical, um, uh, as kind of as a, as a kind of theory, uh, it's not really uh, super well developed. But one one way that I think of it now is to distinguish between entrepreneurial artifacts and what you might call scaffolding or supporting artifacts. So entrepreneurial artifacts, uh, I, I, I think of as any artifact that kind of instantiates that abstract kind of vision or opportunity that you have in a way that supports its further development. 
So then it has to be some instantiation of your business idea. But then you can, of course, have artifacts that are more tool-oriented, like the one you mentioned. So you have some sort of tool that you can apply to your idea in order to develop it. But um, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not super convinced that that's a really useful distinction, but it's one that I'm toying around a little bit with right now. Because I think it's useful to think of entrepreneurial artifacts as aspects of the venture that you're trying to build. You know, you, you, you have a prototype, you have a landing page. That is basically an instantiation of your idea. Yeah. That artifact, as opposed okay. to a tool that you can apply, like a business model canvas or something, which is more of a scaffolding kind of artifact. Okay. Well, maybe we can develop that. I'll give you a tour of the uh, economics for business tool set at some point in time, and you can, you can advise us on, uh, on which is which. Absolutely. So let's get down to one, uh, one word we've both mentioned that is particularly important to uh, the Austrian theory of entrepreneurship, and that's uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I think if I understood you correctly in, in reading the paper, you've changed the concept of uncertainty for entrepreneurs, that uh, we talk about judgment under uncertainty, but we can't tell you how to do it. It's, it's a, uh, a cerebral uh, event I, that I can only evaluate uh, with hindsight. And you're saying, no, it's a, it's a, it can be resolved by uh, addressing it via design. And design is doing things. It's uh, it's material. You can you can use these artifacts, and you can solve entrepreneurship, and you can get to a solution. So, just go into that for us a little bit, uh, Henrik, so we can we can understand the concept of uncertainty as you see it. Yeah. Well, uh, in in the in the paper, I related to this experimental and transformational approach, uh, and I call I speak of epistemic and uh, or epistemological and ontological uncertainty. So in the first instance, experimentation, where you the entire kind of approach is premised on the idea that there is an objective reality out there. You're trying to design an artifact that fits with that reality. Then the way you reduce uncertainty is by gathering information about the world, you know, informa- information, uh, i.e. epistemic uncertainty. In the other instance, where you're essentially creating a new world in some small respect. You're creating new market categories, new kinds of demand, new uh, ways of thinking about and relating to your smartphone, for instance. Uh, Then it's not about gathering information as a means of reducing uncertainty. Uh, You create a new world. And that's, you know, how I think about ontological uncertainty. Epistemology, of course, relating to information and ontology relating to what is. So that's where those terms come from in the paper. so um, perhaps I didn't exactly answer your question. You related it more to uh, Austrian economics and, and the idea of uncertainty there. But I think the, when I, the way we develop the whole design perspective of entrepreneurship here, I think is a really nice complement to the Austrian idea of entrepreneurship as something that you cannot just you know, analyze your way out of. It's, it's judgment, it's uh, imagination it's very difficult to kind of formalize and trade and those types of things. And I think the Austrian tradition, as of course much economics, is very abstract. You, you deal with individuals and markets and, and, um, and, and uh, it's not so much about actually building concrete things. You know, it's not a design discipline in that sense. But I think um, one way that your judgment can be put into effect, can be put into action, is by testing it in different ways or... Uh, using it to engage in some sort of transformational process. 
And in this sense, uh, what we're talking about here is a nice complement to the idea that entrepreneurship is grounded in an individual judgment, an individual intuition, an individual imagination of what could be done. So it's not yeah. that it, it's not that it replaces or uh, conflicts with it at all. Uh, economics and, and design disciplines exist in different kind of uh, academic realms, but I think they do complement each other really nicely. One of the thinkers that we've looked at uh, is John Boyd, who wasn't an intellectual or an academic, and he wasn't an entrepreneur. He was a military strategist. But he says, in every situation of continuous change, you've got to have both analysis and synthesis. You've got to have both uh, deduction and induction. Mm-hmm. And I guess some people call that abduction sometimes. But you've got to have both. You've got to have a good theory to start with. Otherwise, you can't cope with everything that's going on. But then you've got to look at the information and the, the knowledge and the, the data and, and make sense of that as well. So maybe, maybe that's similar to what you're saying. You need both. One's a complement to the other. Yeah, I, I, that, that, uh, I haven't read, you know, that's a name that pops up all over the place, that OODA loop, uh, like it's, it's uh, observe, orient, uh, decide, decide and act or decide something like act. that. Yeah. So it's, it's similar to that, like Deming cycle or, you know, build, measure, learn that Eric Ries talks about as well. So I think uh, what's true there is that there is a cycle, you know, that you need to cycle through, you know, uh, doing things, deciding and acting and, and perhaps stepping back and reflecting. And that's true, I think, for both of my ideal types of experimentation and transformation as well. But the way you actually do it is perhaps a bit more nuanced since I described two kinds of design whereas he perhaps lays out the more fundamental cyclical nature of of it all combining both concrete doing and abstract reflection yeah how do we how do we summarize all this nicely for uh for our listeners i try to write a key takeaways at at the end for our webpage so how would you guide me to write the key takeaways well i one key takeaway or one concrete lesson that uh, has at least resonated with many of the students that I'm teaching uh, concerns uh, dating uh, and how to think about engaging people in these more kind of open-ended conversations as opposed to pitching. So uh, in, terms of, in terms of asking a girl or a boy out for a date, you know, instead of asking, uh, will you go out with me, which is kind of a yes or no pitch kind of question, here I am, take it or leave it. If you said ask, you know, what would it take for you to go out with me, you know, and try to engage them in a kind of conversation, then then you can you can definitely see doors opening to more fruitful conversations, you know, as opposed to this simple uh, yes or no question, will you go out with me? And uh, you know, as soon as I introduce that as a more kind of transformational and co-creative approach to getting a date, I can see the coin kind of uh, being a little light bulb going up in front of the uh, above the heads of my students. So. That's one one takeaway for anyone looking for a date, at least. Good. So asking for a date is an experimentation, right? It's, it's or, it's, or it's transformation, and transformation might be more efficient. <laughs> I was going to say, that's your second version, is the transformational <laughs> version. Good. Good. What's well, a nice note to end on. Yeah, thank you. Henrik, thank you very much. Thank you. Economics for Business is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit econforbusiness.com. And for more from Hunter Hastings, visit hunterhastings.com.